welcome to our series on 1 Corinthians. My name is Dennis Perez, and I'm part of the men's ministry teaching team. We've put together seven videos in which we'll be discussing some key teachings for believers found in this letter. In part one, we'll be looking at chapters one and two. Thank you so much for watching. Let's get started. At the center of time as we know it, the creator of the universe interrupted human history, put on human flesh, and walked amongst us. Born into this world as a baby, Jesus shared in our human experience, and as a man, God laid down his own life so that we might have everlasting life in him. In the years that followed Jesus' victory over death, his followers experienced great persecution in spreading the good news. Like their Savior, many of them were arrested, beaten, and murdered for the sake of the gospel. In another great interruption, Saul of Tarsus, who was one of those persecuting the early church, was transformed by the risen Savior and reclaimed for the purpose of advancing the kingdom of God on earth. In his journey across the known world, the Apostle Paul planted a church in one of the ancient world's most advanced cities. Known for its wealth, the city of Corinth was a hub of the Mediterranean world and home to hundreds of thousands of people. Amidst the materialistic, pagan culture, Paul proclaims the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. We learn in the book of Acts, chapter 18 and verse 11, that Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months and taught the word of God. Sometime after Paul leaves Corinth, he receives a troubling report about the behavior of the Corinthian church. Divisions arose between the brotherhood of believers and factions were being formed under various leaders. Immoral behavior of all kinds was not only on the rise, but also being bragged about. The church, which in its infancy had the testimony of Christ confirmed in it, was now reverting back to reflect the image of the world rather than the image of God. Paul responds by writing a letter to the church, which we know today as 1 Corinthians. In the content of his letter, Paul reorients the thinking of the letter's recipients to the theology of the cross. Twenty years had passed since Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The event that changed everything is the ultimate remedy that Paul offers to the ailing church. Throughout the letter, Paul focuses on the person and work of Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what that means for the way life ought to be lived. Now today, many Christians are familiar with the practical teaching found in 1 Corinthians, and even non-Christians may recognize parts of the letter as it's read at many weddings. However, the focus of the letter is to build on the foundation of Christ and to remind the Corinthians of the power of the cross and its theological implications. In his letter, Paul doesn't dispense advice without first laboring over the significance of God's work through Christ. It is Paul's high Christology that we'll be focusing on. And he sets the tone in the first two chapters of the letter by contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. In the culture of the day, wisdom was held in high esteem. The Greek philosophers of that age had so influenced the culture that wisdom and those who possessed it and expressed it were exalted. Paul could have leveraged this and played the part of the lofty philosopher or poet because he was an educated man. We read in Acts and throughout his epistles about his training, education, and cultural pedigree. He knew and quoted the Hebrew scriptures, but he also quoted poets contemporary to the culture of the day, such as in his speech in Acts 17 to the men of Athens. But Paul reminds the church that when he came to them, it wasn't with lofty speech or wisdom. Instead, he came in weakness and fear through the Spirit of God. 
Rather than play the hero, Paul chooses to play the fool in a play on the human stage where he takes on the role of a servant. Drawing on linguistic style more commonly used in Roman theater, Paul combines words that otherwise wouldn't go together and unites them in a way that confronts and even shocks the sensibility of the so-called wise men of the day. He writes about the crucified Messiah and even goes as far as to say things like the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Throughout the letter, Paul uses contradicting ideas like this to highlight the wisdom of God and supremacy of Christ over the wisdom and boasting of men. Even in his introduction, there's an oxymoron at play. He introduces himself as Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul and apostle may not appear right away to be polar opposites, but when you think about who Paul was, the persecutor of the church, overseeing the capture and execution of Christians, that guy is now an apostle. Chosen by God, sent by the risen Christ himself to be used of God to spread the gospel. If you were choosing someone to represent you, would you choose your enemy? It's this type of reversal in thinking that Paul suggests points to the wisdom and power of God in Christ. In a direct confrontation with the wisdom of the age, Paul describes the message of the cross in chapter 1 verse 18 as foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those being saved, he says it's the power of God. Now, we can all understand something about the horror of the cross and the painful death that one would die because of it. But the rulers of the age intended much more than that through the symbolism used in crucifixion. Clearly, it was a form of torture, but the cross was not only meant to inflict physical harm, it was also used to humiliate people and make a profound and shocking statement for all to see. In Roman society, the cross was often used to punish slaves or people who didn't stay in their place within the ranks of society. The cross was used as a sick and twisted joke by which the enemies of those in power were lifted up for all to see as if to cynically say, you think you can rise up from beneath us? Well, here you go. It was a degrading and dehumanizing experience. But God, in his wisdom, uses this disgusting display of human depravity in his own sense of reversal and irony and actually uses the cross as the coronation of Christ. Jesus went to the cross with a crown of thorns and left with the crown of heaven. The very means by which the powers of this age, both human and divine, sought to snuff him out just so happened to be the way that he defeats them instead. So why does this matter? Why does Paul take the Corinthians through all this theology? The world in which Corinth existed, and even many people today see this as foolish. But it is the foolishness of God which Paul says is actually the power of God. And this power of God is wisdom that can only be revealed by the Spirit of God. So, as the members of the church at Corinth reverted back to their worldly wisdom, Paul calls them to remember that the worldly wisdom that they're clinging to is actually foolish compared to the wisdom of God. This is quite evident in their behavior as we read through the letter and get a sense for the things that they were doing. They were living and looking more like the world and less like disciples of Jesus. So Paul continues to develop the distinction between human wisdom 
and the wisdom of God. And picking up in chapter 1, verse 19, he appeals to scripture and quotes Isaiah 29, 14, where he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will confound. And following this quote, Paul asks rhetorically, Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And for his response, Paul gives us God's saving message in the context of the foolish wisdom paradox and says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Notice who Paul says God is pleased to save. It is those who believe. As the Corinthian church was splitting and people were siding with one leader over another, Paul reminds them that it was not the wisdom of men by which we are saved, but by belief in the preaching of the foolishness of God. And what is this foolishness being preached? Paul tells us in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. And who does Paul say Christ is? Well, he tells us in verse 24, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. The gospel is Paul's response to the division in the church. Christ alone is the answer. The good news that in the ultimate act of condescension, God in the person of Jesus Christ saved us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is, not because of what we do, but because of what he did. Paul reminds his audience that not many of them were wise according to human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born into positions of status. But the foolish things of the world God chose in order that he might put to shame the wise. And the weak things of the world God chose in order that he might put to shame the strong. And the insignificant of the world and the despised. God chose the things that are not in order that he might abolish the things that are so that no one can boast. Because wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption come from Christ and not from ourselves. Moving into chapter 2, Paul tells his audience that this wisdom is secret and was hidden and decreed by God before the ages. But why would God do this? Paul says that it's because if the rulers of this age understood this, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. If we go back to verse 8, in the Greek, Paul uses the word archon to describe the rulers. This term Paul uses could mean human rulers, divine rulers, or even both groups simultaneously. Because it was not only the Jewish and the Roman rulers who put Jesus on the cross, but also evil spiritual rulers who sought to conquer the Messiah through death. However, there's a great reversal in which it's through his death that the Messiah actually conquers them all. Paul adds to this idea with another quote from the Old Testament scriptures. He says, As it's written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and have not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. Interestingly, this is a quotation from Isaiah 64, in which the passage starts with an appeal to God to come down from heaven and reveal himself to make his name known to his adversaries, that the nations might tremble. We see in Paul's telling of the gospel the fulfillment of this appeal in the person of Jesus. Paul then describes how these things have been revealed through the Spirit. 
of whom he says searches all things, even the depths of God. He now writes to make a connection between the secret and foolish wisdom of God and the revelation of this wisdom to the believer. He says, For who among men knows things of a man except the spirit of man that is in him? Thus also no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we haven't received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, in order that we may know the things freely given to us by God, things which we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now the spiritual person discerns all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has advised him? But we have the mind of Christ. Using another quote from Isaiah, Paul puts a theological exclamation point on the end of his introduction. In Isaiah 40.13, it reads, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? With whom did he consult? Or who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? The answer, of course, is no one. No one teaches God. No one enlightens God or leads him into understanding. No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. However, this same Spirit, Paul says, has been received by the believer. In part, he explains that this is for the believer to know the things of God. The natural man cannot do this, but the believer, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, has been gifted the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering them with the ability to perceive and communicate, not by worldly human means, but by the Spirit of God, which is one with the mind of Christ. Therefore, Paul says, we not only know the mind of the Lord, but we have the mind of Christ the Lord. In these passages, we also see a powerful framework for what Christians would later describe as God's triune nature. We see Paul describe the Spirit and Christ as separate persons, yet each having qualities that only God the Father can have. Three distinct persons, but all of one substance, a beautiful representation of how God has chosen to reveal himself. Now, having this gift of the Spirit and understanding that we have the mind of Christ— we should realize this mind is not ours, but God's. From this point, Paul deals with the issues plaguing the Corinthian church. It's this spiritual mindset that pierces through the culture and corruption in the church. Paul doesn't just tell the people to stop doing what they're doing because it's bad. Rather, he reminds them of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what that has afforded them. In this context, it's clear to see the ways of the world at work in the church, division, immorality, pride, all clearly in opposition to the life Christ has given us. Through Paul's introduction, we see that the message of the cross is a message that not only describes an actual event, but one that also anchors believers in the very nature of Christ our Lord. In God's wisdom, he made us in his image. In God's foolishness, he gave us freedom. In God's Son, He gave us life. In God's Spirit, He gave us direction. Thank you for joining us for part one of this series. I pray that it brings you into closer fellowship with God. Music